Welcome back to the John Gill Podcast Show, and on this episode, I'm super excited to have on Greg Dickerson of Dickerson International. Uh, he's a serial entrepreneur, real estate developer, coach, and mentor, and he has bought and developed and sold over $250 million in real estate, built and renovated hundreds of custom homes and commercial buildings, uh, developed residential, mixed-use subdivisions, and started 12 different companies from the ground up. Uh, he mentors entrepreneurs, investors, and developers, and he helps them to grow and scale their business. Uh, his clients have uh, over $2 billion in assets under management and deals in process. So we're super excited to have him on. Greg, thank you so much for being on the show. Hey, John, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah. And Greg, before I start off, I want to say I'm a huge fan of, of uh, what you put out there on Instagram. I've been following you, it almost seems like uh, since you started, I think... Uh, I, th I think I saw your from your first video to your current video, they're just excellent. So thank you so much for coming awesome. on. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So Greg, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I um, started in the business in 1997 as a remodeling uh, contractor handyman guy and just doing little jobs, built that into a $30 million building company in seven years. Uh, started 12 other companies along the way and kind of sold everything off in 0405 and, and focused uh, strictly on development and investing from that point on. So, you know, what I did, what I learned early on was to build businesses that generate cash flow to invest in other assets. So I just did that at scale with a number of businesses and I still do that now, but now it's just more outsourced, um, you know, more, uh, you know, versus me working in any particular business. You know, I coach and mentor people and do, you know, deals with people that are already either existing operators or people that want to start something and I kind of do the business through them. So, Everything's kind of outsourced, delegated, turnkey now versus, you know, having the actual operating companies myself that I owned, you know, in the, in the early days. Amazing. And how were, so how were you able to scale? Uh, let's talk about mindset for a second, because I think that that's probably one of the key important steps to getting, going to that extra mile in this business. Uh, what are your, some yeah. of your go-to books uh, for inspiration? So I started out with, you know, Think and Grow Rich, uh, Power of Positive Thinking, uh, in terms of mindset books, and then Rich Dad, Poor Dad was a bit of a mindset book and had some mindset shifts in there. So reading those three when I started my entrepreneurial journey in 97. Now, prior to that, you know, I, I joined the Navy right out of high school, so I was military. Um, so when I started out, I started with nothing, from nothing, no connections, no, you know, no anything. Uh, so I learned it all the hard way, but, you know, I went through the Navy, I did get some good training there, not mindset, but business training, discipline, mm -hmm. leadership systems. Um, you know, you learn a lot of that in the military. Then when I got out, um, I was working in the restaurant industry and I, I received some really good business training there, learned how to budget numbers, run numbers, run, a, run an operation by the numbers, by the systems, learn how to become a leader, delegator, motivator, you know, how to, how to manage, you know, recruit, hire, train, manage people. How to, how to really delegate a lot of employees. Because in a restaurant, you, you got 100 employees in one restaurant. And I had 13 of them that I was managing. Wow. So I'm a fast learner, hard worker. And, um, you know, they assigned us a number of books from a management standpoint that were really eye-opening for me. The One Minute Manager series, a book called Managing by Harold Janine, founder of ITT or CEO of ITT, uh, multi-conglomerate. So his book was really good on how to run a number of, of operations, a number of companies. Um, so I just read those things and I, and, you know, 
like, well, they can do it. I can do it. So in terms of mindset and belief, you know, you want to find somebody who's doing what you want to do, who has accomplished what you want to accomplish and you find your proof and concept in them. Then you reverse engineer what they did. So I, I didn't know any better, right? I didn't go to college. I didn't have anybody telling me you couldn't do anything or could do anything. I read these books about people that achieved great, extraordinary success. I learned from Napoleon Hill all about mindset that if you believe you will achieve and that if you follow a process now, that doesn't mean you can believe and then lay in your bed or sit on your couch. Right. <laughs> it means that, you know, there's a process. So if you have a sincere desire, if you want it bad enough, if you educate yourself and you have some skills um, and develop those skills, then you can achieve what anybody else before you has achieved. So that's really what I got about, got out of all of that. And then of course, Napoleon Hill was big on the uh, mastermind, right. having mentors in the mastermind. And what was really cool about that was he's like, look, a mentor doesn't need to be alive here with you. You can learn from somebody. So I started reading everything I could find about successful people in all kinds of industries, all kinds of business, um, leadership, management. Uh, you know, I studied Tony Robbins, Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy, you know, Harvey McKay, Jim Rohn. Uh, I mean, just all of them. And yeah. so the difference is with me um, going back to when I first started, it was books and then it was books on tape. I had the little Walkman and if I was out exercising, I had my headphones Absolutely. on and I'm listening to tapes. And then it was the CD player. Uh, and then it was the iPod. I still have my 80 gig iPod with all my books on it. So I've never owned music <clears throat> that I've listened to, um, you know, whenever I've been out exercising and doing things. So I consumed, you know, probably over a thousand books. If I went back and looked at it, it's been over, probably over a thousand books in my, you know, entire career of 30, you know, 30 plus years, 1985 going to the Navy. I got out in 89. So from 89 on, of consuming books and, and, you know, uh, professional, personal, professional development content. Never do I ever have music on it. I don't have any music on my iPhone now. It's all books, tapes, you know, personal and professional development. So that's, that's kind of how I did it. That's amazing. That's amazing. And how did you take the plunge from, you know, going from some of the smaller deals to just those bigger deals? At what point did you decide, you know, that, and let's talk about some of your first deals. How, how did, how did you get how did you source some of those? And then at what point did you decide, you know, I'm going to go on to some of these larger uh, properties? You know, it's all awareness. And it's funny because I made a video the other day, you know, we all hear that, you know, your network is your net worth and it's not, you know, what you know, it's who you know. And, you know, I don't agree with that. I think it's what you know, and when you know it, and more importantly, whether or not you apply it. So for me, it was what I knew when I knew it. So I just didn't know what I didn't know. And my first deal was a lot flip. You know, a friend of mine that was a realtor and he said, you know, I was successful with my building company and other things I was doing and I was building a lot of cash. And at the time I'd read Rock Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I'd read some other real estate investing stuff. And, you know, I kind of had a little bit of it in my head, but, you know, I, I just didn't know anything about it. Right. I'd bought a house. I was, you know, owned my own house and all that. Actually, I was on my second home by then. So I knew you could buy real estate, but I didn't know you could flip real estate. So this realtor comes to me and he's like, yeah, man, we can buy this lot. You put up all the money. My dad's got a client that'll pay us, you know, 50000 more than we're paying it. And, you know, we can make a spread there. He said, you know, I know the seller and we can buy it under market value. I was like, you know, I'm looking around like, can you do that? Right. He's like, yeah. <laughs> so we did it. So I put up the money. He did everything else. We flipped it. We split, you know, whatever it was, 30, 50 grand. And I was like, man, you know, in 30 days, I, I was like, you know, this can't be real. And he's like, oh, yeah, people do this all the time. So that kind of clued me in to, and I was in a market where land values were escalating quickly and I was a builder. So then what I started doing was tying up land 
and flipping it to my clients and then building them a house. Wow. So I started doing that. I was in a vacation rental market, so it was all investment property driven. It was all about cash flow. This was back before 2009. So you could borrow money on a credit score. They went on appraised value, not cost. So they would loan you based on the appraised value with new construction. The houses were always worth more than what you could buy. Mm -hmm. So if you bought, you know, existing homes, you'd have to put 20% down, you know, because they would kind of appraise at what you're paying. But if you're doing new construction, they appraise for more than what the actual contract was to build right. and the cost of the land because it was appreciating so fast. It was a really great business model. So I started focusing on that. And I had a friend of mine who was a developer uh, that was a very sophisticated developer that came down and he taught me how to build tech houses and how to develop land. And he totally took advantage of me and really, you know, tried to cheat me. And that relationship did not end well, mm. but I learned a ton. Um, you know, I mean, he cost me a couple hundred thousand dollars that he took advantage of me and kind of, you know, cheated me out of. Um, but I learned some really valuable lessons there. Just didn't know what I didn't know. So for me, it was just stepping my game up, doing bigger and bigger deals, learning from people by doing deals with them, learning from people as mentors. I took some courses and things like that. So I took some apartment investing courses, read some books. You know, I had a couple of mentors in the commercial multifamily space, the old school guys, you know, Dave Lundahl read all his stuff, you know, took a couple of his courses. Then there was another guy named Anthony Dudo, another guy named Scott Shield back in the day. Of course, you know, the residential was Carlton Sheet, you know. Oh yeah, Carlton Sheet, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Ruff Whitney, you know, he was out there. So, you know, I was reading and studying those guys, went to some seminars, that kind of thing. So, you know, that's kind of how I learned. And then I, I'm a doer. So if, if there's an idea, like I'm the guy that if you came up to me and said, hey man, I've got this idea to go, you know, do this business and, you know, manufacture widgets and go, I'm like, okay, so let's go. So right. I mean, I just do. So I'm a doer. Mm -hmm. So once the idea hits and that's how success works, right? You get the idea, you start thinking it, you start speaking it, then you go do it. You know, that's how success proceeds. The idea, faith, belief, the means to implement it, then you got to just do it. So, so that's me. I just like to do things. I like to build things and develop things. I like to take action. And the execution I think is more important sometimes than just the planning, right? I think people take too long sometimes to plan and, and not really execute. Has that been the case? Yeah. Okay. Uh, and as far yeah, people get stuck yeah. in analysis paralysis, you know, there's right. so much information now. So I was fortunate in my early career, there wasn't that much information. There wasn't any internet. So it was just a few books, a few courses, and it was only a handful of people teaching. Mm. So for me, it was real easy. It was like, okay, well, this is how you buy apartments. There's one book on it, you know? So I went out and did it. And then, you know, obviously there were the Sam Zells and, you know, people like that. And then I had other people around me that were real estate developers and successful business uh, entrepreneurs that were coming down to my area where I lived and they were buying these million dollar beach houses. So I would be like, okay, where'd you get your money? You know, how do you, how do you make money? So I would sit down and that's the other thing is that I've always been a seeker of wisdom. So I would always use that term. And for anybody listening, if you want to, knowledge from somebody, never reach out and say, let me pick your brain. You know, just that's, you just don't do that. So what I did and what people do now is I would say, look, I'm a seeker of wisdom. You've been very successful in your career. You're buying these big beach houses, man. I would love, you know, five or 10 minutes so I could just learn from you. I want to be where you are. I want to do what you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, um, you know, it would just be, so that's kind of how I always approached it as a seeker of wisdom. Um, you know, I really admire what you've achieved in your career. I would love to be able to do what you do. Would you share your success with me? Would you share your wisdom with me? That's kind of how I approach it. That's amazing. Uh, that, that, yeah, that I, you're right. I think that the wrong approach is always to just, yeah, let me pick your brain for a second. I think it just, mm -hmm. it's not, it's, you know, there's, there's a way to, there's different means to the end and, and that's definitely not the best approach. 
now, how have things changed as far as underwriting deals from when you started to now? As you know, has anything really is the equation more or less the same? Uh, you know, you you identify the property, you underwrite it. Uh, are, do, have assumptions changed drastically from when you originally started to today, uh, or are things more or less the same? Yeah, it's all the same. I mean, there's nothing new under the sun. You know, it's income and expenses. So if you're talking about cash flow properties, it's dollars in, dollars out. If you're talking about development, it's, you know, what is the end end value? What's the end game, the end sale? And then you reverse engineer that all the way back into what your land cost is to determine that. So nothing new has changed there. What has evolved and changed is the financing. So, you know, what you pay for an asset is permanent, right? The financing is what's temporary. So that's the game that has changed over the years. And, you know, financing is the key. And that's both in the private mm. markets and in the public markets, you know, private money versus, you know, capital markets, debt markets, things like that. So those things have changed and evolved over the years. But fundamentals of a deal are the same. You know, it's for development. It's ground up outside in, dirt's dirt, right? Um, technologies have changed. Building materials have changed. Processes have changed. But the fundamentals of how it works is, is, has never changed and it never will in terms of, of how these things are done. Now, the business model changes too. So, um, it, you know, the whole value add game right now, this is, you know, June of 2020. We are still in the coronavirus situation and we have riots and things going on. So in terms of how you underwrite something right now at this right. given time um, in our history uh, is very different than how I was underwriting three months ago and even six months ago, you know, so in terms of what you're looking for and two weeks, six weeks from now, it might be different still. So mm. that has changed in terms of assumptions of, you know, risk, liability, and whether or not the business plan of value add um, or opportunistic is going to work like it was even six, eight weeks ago. Yeah, that's, that, that's, a, that's a great point. Uh, now, as far as the difference between an investor deciding to go into development or multifamily, what would you recommend for someone who's actually just looking to start in the real estate game? Uh, you know, should they go straight into multifamily? Uh, you hear from different, well, Grant Cardone says, you know, go straight into multifamily apartment community investing, you know, don't go for the two to three flat deals. W what would you say about that? So we had that conversation. I don't know if you saw that. I did. I, I did. Grant that was a great. Ago. We kind of talked. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. We talked a little bit about that and we have differing philosophies. So, you know, Grant is big, right? So go big, everything's big, but he's doing a little training program now where he's, he's talking about starting a little smaller. So what I would say is, um, you know, and there's, there's different debates on this equation. Some people say start small and work your way up. Some people say start big. You can't start super big anyway. So it depends on your experience. Um, your skill level, your expertise, your not your knowledge of real estate in general, uh, your comfort level, your financial resources, your ability to borrow money, and your network of who you know and the ability to raise capital. So with all those things in place, you know, there are people that debate, hey, you got to start small and scale your way up. That's what I did. There's people that say, you know, hey, you can start at 20 to 100 units, but don't go any bigger than that, which is fine. And then there's people that I know personally that have started at the two, three, 500 unit level and scaled from there to 5,000 units and mm -hmm. sold their portfolio. Now, that group came from the institutional world. They worked for Blackstone um, or BlackRock. I get them confused. Blackstone, um, yeah. So they were, they were in the, yeah, yeah, they were in the institutional world. 
So they came from there in the high level real estate world. So two or three of those guys came together and their family were in the business of real estate development prior. So they grew up in it. They had a background and they had the ability to raise capital and they knew the business. So they came together, formed the company. Uh, these guys were in Detroit and started buying, you know, 500 to a thousand unit properties and scaled that up to like, I don't know, it was five or 8,000 units. I can't remember what it was, huge. And then sold it off over a five year period. Mm. So they started at 500 units, you know? So, um, so that's that group. Me, I started with a lot flip. Then I started building spec houses. You know, then I started developing commercial properties and residential subdivisions and I built office buildings that I built. For me, it was just, what's the next challenge I haven't done yet. And I was meeting all these people that were doing these different things. I'm like, man, that's cool. You know, so I would just do whatever came along and I had a building company. So I was building these things for people. And then I'm like, well, shoot, you know, that's when I realized the people I'm working for is who I want to be. So then I would start go do, you know, and do my own project. Um, so that's kind of how I scaled. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so what I tell people is number one, if you're wherever you're comfortable in your knowledge and your skill set and your ability to take risk and that ability and tolerance level is going to change throughout your life. So I'm in a very different place now at 52 than I was in 1997 when I was, you know, 28, 29, when I was starting out, I had the, you know, my kids were young. We didn't have a lot to lose, so I could take big risk and I wasn't afraid to lose it all and take big risk. And, you know, I've kind of always been a risk taker as I've gone along, but now I'm a little smarter and more protective of what I've built to earn, you know, over the last number of years. So I'm a little bit more cautious about, you know, how I approach the business now. And I'll probably even get, you know, more risk averse as I get older. So that's going to be different for everybody. I mean, I know people that well into their 70s and 80s that still risk it all and roll the dice, you know, (laughs) they don't care. So, you know, it just all depends on what your goals are. So anybody can start anywhere, but you got to know what you're doing. And if you don't, you got to learn. So then you want to start small, you know, and Mm -hmm. learn your way up. So then your, your mistakes are minimized because they're smaller. You've got less to lose. You know, if you go big, you can mess up big if you don't know what you're doing. And then you can leverage with partners and, and all that kind of stuff. So there is no one size fits all. Yeah, that's that's a great point. What, what a great answer. And now as far as choosing a specific market, I know that you're in the Southeast uh, or that you, you like to look at markets in the Southeast. How do you identify a market? What are the sort of trends that you look for? Yeah. So, and on that last topic, so, yeah. you know, so like for grants, okay, scale. So if you want to scale fast, you got to go big. That's how you scale, right? There's more efficiencies. There's more, you know, um, you know, operational efficiencies as you go and economies of scale and development has bigger margins. So Grant doesn't do development. You know, he won't do that. He buys existing properties. I do development because you can double your money. There's bigger margins faster. You can double your money in value add. It's going to take you five years, seven years, 10 years in development. You can do it in a couple of years. So that's why I develop. That's why I've done that. It's bigger margins faster than the value add or the, or the, you know, core, core plus strategy. So, in terms of markets, yeah, I like the Southeast um, for a lot of reasons. One, obviously, population growth. You know, right now the hot spots are, you know, Arizona, Nevada, Arizona areas, um, Texas, uh, Mexico's got a little little growth going on there. And then, of course, you know, that, that Southeast coast from, you know, Florida down in, you know, some, some areas of Georgia, South Carolina, but mostly in Florida. Uh, and I like the weather conditions as well. You don't have the operational expenses, delays cost issues that you run into with winter weather conditions in some of the other parts of the country. But, uh, you know, you want to go where you have, you know, net migration, you know, where the population's increasing, more people are coming than mm-hmm. going, um, net population increase, job growth, income growth. But generally, if, if, if the population's increasing, the income and all that other stuff's going to be there too. So you don't have to dig too much into that. You just want to look at net migration. Where are people 
going and where is the population growing? And does climate change ever come into effect in, in your analysis? I mean, do you think that maybe if a climate change accelerates, uh, is, that a, is that a concern? Or are you kind of in, in these, you know, two, three years, four years, it's not really going to be that much of a change to... Yeah, I don't, you know, so I don't hold long term. I build and sell. Right. You know, that's what I like to do, or I'll, I'll buy an existing, you know, opportunistic kind of deal and, and turn it around and sell it. So I don't really worry about the long term in that reflect, other than like the coastal region. So, you know, the coastal regions, you have to take that into effect. You have to look at erosion rates, you have to look at flood zones, mm. you know, and, and things like that. So, uh, you know, your, your environmental concerns can come into play there. But, you know, overall, um, you know, it depends on the area that you're developing in and what you're looking at. You want to make sure you're not in a flood zone. You want to make sure you're not in a coastal hazard zone, you know, all those types of things. And if you are, you got to mitigate those things and get in and get out, you know, and be prepared for it and have the right insurance. Yeah, absolutely. And going, going to that, um, piggybacking a little bit on, on what might happen, you know, what have been some of your biggest challenges to date? Uh, some of your, some of your top challenges that you've seen on the, let's say the three biggest challenges that you faced in real estate and how have you overcome those? You know, the biggest one, I just didn't know what I didn't know. I mean, that, that was your, you know, I don't know if you want to even call no, it. No, no. Yeah. Yeah. I guess it's just, yeah. yeah. I mean, in terms of True. holding back growth, just not knowing and not being aware of what the possibilities were and you know what I didn't know. So I always tried to find out what I didn't know. I've been a seeker of wisdom, tried to learn as much as I could you know, and what is it that I don't know? What am I missing? You know, and try to learn from there. And there's so much information now that you can learn so much quicker. Um, you know, so that was, that was one. The other thing early on for me was, you know, I didn't know how to raise capital early on in my career. If I would have, you know, I did everything with my own money, you know, so that, that quarter billion, you know, deals that I've done, you know, that is just my own money. You know, I'm now I've done, you know, four or 500 million, you know, with other capital, but my own personal resources, that's how I started. So that limited me. That was kind of a challenge. You know, my first business is you know, I financed on credit cards, you know, and getting zero interest, you know, car payments for new company trucks. And, you know, I did all the stuff you're not supposed to do. Zero interest wasn't bad, but, um, you know, credit <laughs> cards is definitely not the way to go. But right. I didn't have any money. I had no other way to finance my business. So, um, I mean, I, I literally remember going and buying tools as I needed them with the cash I was making from the jobs and then reinvesting all the profits. So I didn't make a lot of money in the early years because I was reinvesting all the cash into the business. And then on real estate deals, I was just doing what I did with the cash flow, with the money I was making. So had I have known how to raise capital back then, like I know now, man, I could have blown it up and grown a lot faster. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. What, what, how do you source your deals today? Uh, are you, is it just broker relationships? I mean, do you pick up the phone and still call uh, owner of, pro, uh, of lots or how, how are you sourcing these sort of deals today? Or what's yeah, good, so yeah. for development land, yeah, I've always had a, a, a system there for farming vacant land in certain areas for things that I'm looking for. Uh, but, you know, I've been at it since 1997. So people know me. So I get calls right. and emails every day with projects, properties, you know, and I'm working with people all over the country. So deals just come to me. And, you know, I've had a reputation as a closer. So number one, I'm easy to work with. Uh, people know that I close. They know that I know how to get deals done. So when you have that reputation, stuff just comes to you. But um, for certain things, you do have to have a system. So for vacant lots, infill development, you know, I stay on top of the brokers, communicate with them, let them know I'm still there. So even though they know you, you still have to keep letting them know, hey, I'm here, I'm here, you know, I'm ready to close. Yeah, that kind of thing. But the bigger deals, that's more of a pipeline that just, you know, kind of comes to me. Same thing with capital. I don't have to raise capital anymore. It just kind of comes to me. 
And, um, you know, in my social media, like you're talking about, people will see that and reach out to me and say, hey, do you have any deals that you're looking for capital for? So I get, you know, emails and calls every day on that just because I'm out there and people know that I know what I'm doing. You know, so um, so it's a little easier now, but it's been 30 years in the making. So if someone uh, someone's watching this show, uh, let's say the if someone wanted to partner up with you, is that something that you'd consider if they've got a great deal uh, in, a, in a different market? Is that something you might entertain? Uh, or are, are you very selective with who you're partnering up with? Yeah, I'm very selective with that. I don't partner, you know, um, as a rule. Uh, mm-hmm. I've just been down that road enough to where I just don't need complications. So, um, you know, what I do is I coach and I mentor people. And then if somebody has a deal, you know, I like to be in charge. I like to be in control. Um, at this point in my life now, um, you know, if there's an opportunity like in a company or a business or something like that, and I come in and take equity in an advisory role right. in an existing concern or company, I'll do some of those types of things. So it's not really a partnership. It's more, you know, uh, getting equity for intellectual capital. So I do do those types of deals um, and, and, and things like that. And, you know, I've got a handful of people that I've done deals with over the years. So, you know, I just, I'm just not at a point in my life where I want to train anybody up on my dime. Yeah, no, I, I completely understand. Well, you know, Greg, this has been a, a great having you on the show. I, I really appreciate it. If anyone wants to get a hold of you, what's the best way that they can reach you? Yep, gregdickerson.com is my website. Um, you know, all the information's on there. I'm on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram. So I've, I've got a podcast as well. So, you know, you just Google my name and you'll see it everywhere. There's a sportscaster that's Greg Dickerson. So it's really easy to tell us apart. So we're the two that come up when you Google that name. (laughs) Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Greg. This has been great. It's been a pleasure. Uh, I've been looking forward to this uh, all week. So I really thank you again for coming on the show. And if you're ever in Chicago, uh, please, you know, give me a call, Uh, give you a nice tour of our city. And yeah. uh, probably not now, though. You might not want to stop by with what's no, going on. No, not, not, not like right this weekend. But, uh, <laughs> right, right. But okay, well, great. Right now, but yeah, I'd love to see it. I've never been. My daughter's been. A lot of friends there. But uh, yeah, yeah, that's one of the places I need to visit. Yeah, yeah. It's a beautiful city. So thank you so much again. And, uh, you know, hopefully you'll be back on the show at uh, some point uh, in the near future. Yeah, anytime. Awesome, awesome. Well, thanks so much.